0: Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 6 this morning. And we want to uh, look at Matthew 6, 1 through 8, how to give, how to pray. So uh, we will be taking uh, three offerings this morning. (laughs) Just kidding. Just kidding. You know, I I never preach on giving unless I'm in a text that happens to be emphasizing that. I mean, I just, you know, I just want to teach the scripture here. How these people make the... Anyway, uh, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for the word now. I pray that you would give me grace as I teach. Help me to do so accurately and clearly. And uh, you would use it in our hearts for your glory. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are in Matthew. And... It's good to know we're in Matthew. Anyway, (laughs) the theme of Matthew is Christ the King. And uh, we are in that section in chapters 5 through 7, the pronouncements of the King uh, proving his judicial right to the throne uh, as seen in the wisdom of his kingdom teaching. So uh, note uh, the context here, Christ the King, and uh, he goes through various uh, emphases as far as uh, proving his right to the throne. Well, the ministry of Jesus Christ started out with emphasizing the need for repentance because the kingdom was being offered on the condition of repentance. Now, the lives of true repenters are then to be characterized by the description found in the Beatitudes that we have considered and by living out the deeper fulfillment of the moral intent of the law as taught by Christ. A proper understanding of this Sermon on the Mount, which is considered to be the greatest sermon of all time, Matthew five through seven a proper understanding zeros in on matthew five twenty where Christ says, quote, Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom. The distinction being made throughout is the difference between what I call Outside-in righteousness versus inside-out righteousness. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees emphasized an outside-in righteousness. In other words, they put the emphasis on outward legalistic doing, which supposedly made them right with God. Another way of describing this is that they held to a works-righteousness or a law-keeping form of righteousness, which of course they didn't really do as we have seen in chapter five. They were, you ready for this? Hypocrites, hypocrites. Hypocrites are pretenders. They pretended to be all spiritual, but they really uh, were very inconsistent. Well, in in contrast, Christ taught an inside-out righteousness. That means Christ put the emphasis on the heart, What is inside the heart, true repentance and faith, then works its way out in the life. This is the essence of the climactic statement in Matthew 5.48. This is where we left off last time, where Christ says, Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. The emphasis of Christ's teaching is not the legalistic external keeping of the law, but rather being godlike in your character, which then works its way out in your life. You see, inside out. This is God-oriented kind of living that is stressed and now fleshed out in chapter 6. Let me give you a little outline of the first uh, 18 verses that kind of go together as a, uh, as a unit. We have an introductory statement, and, and then three forms of piety are emphasized. Almsgiving, that we will look at this morning, uh, prayer, and then fasting. We won't get to fasting until, well, not next Sunday, but the Sunday after that, Lord willing. Now, there are two great emphases in the Bible concerning faithful Christian living. Do you know what they are? Well, we could break it down this way. That's an open-ended question, but... Uh, Orthodoxy, that means right doctrine. And orthopraxy, right living. And really, this is a package. If one of these is missing, something really is dreadfully wrong. Right doctrine, chapter 5, is important. But so is also right living, chapter 6. Now, people can have right doctrine, but you know, it can just be all head knowledge. That's a problem. In that case, there's a heart problem. People can also be legalistic and even moralist, legalistically uh, moralist. But that's also a heart problem. In either case, it gets back to the heart. As Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your heart with all diligence. For out of it spring the issues of life. Life is all about inside out. The thing that really matters before God is what's going on in your heart. We kind of tend to want to impress people all the time. We're all concerned about what people think. Really, that is not our concern or shouldn't be. What's going on in the heart is the, is the issue of life. And that's what we find here. Let's pick it up. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now, the older manuscripts, I have the New King James that I'm teaching out of this morning, but uh, the older manuscripts have your righteousness here in verse 1 instead of your charitable deeds. And so uh, this is reflected, for example, in the ESV where it says, uh, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. The emphasis here is on practical righteousness. Now, we know as we study the scriptures, we have no righteousness of our own. Uh, Paul says he counted everything lost that he might gain Christ, Christ, not having mine own righteousness, he says. But that was just through faith in Christ. We don't have any rightness to present to God as far as our, our own inherent righteousness. In fact, the Bible says in Isaiah 64, 6, that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. They're all soiled. They're all tainted by sin. So we need what the Bible calls imputed righteousness. That means it's put to our account. Jesus died for our sins, and when we accept him, we get his righteousness. It's imputed righteousness. It's put to our account. It's called grace. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about practical righteousness. I put my faith in him. I receive imputed righteousness. That's my positional standing. But now that is to work its way out in my life, in practical righteousness. That is how we should then now live as Christ's disciples. And again, the contrast here is between the legalistic righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees and that being taught by Christ. In Matthew 5.20, as I say, this is really a key verse in terms of uh, understanding uh, the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom. This now builds on that. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen. The the connecting theme here is righteousness. Uh, The Pharisees had an outward legalistic form of righteousness. Jesus says, that won't, that won't get you there. It's about the heart and that working its way out in your life. Matthew 6.1 sets the table for what is to follow. Christ is going to deal with three common aspects of Jewish piety, namely almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. In living out our righteousness, Christ is making the strong emphasis throughout that motives before God Are the ultimate issue motives are to be God oriented and not self-oriented we are to practice righteous living but it is not to be done in a showy way an ostentatious way showy piety might impress people maybe not but it may impress people but it will definitely not impress God in fact Jesus plainly says if you're putting on a show acting so holy, then you really have no reward from your Father in heaven. The issue of reward is mentioned nine times in the Sermon on the Mount. This is the governing principle throughout that Christ is emphasizing here. Yes, we should be about living for God, orthopraxy, but we should not put on airs about it. Ed Glasscock says, There is a danger even in doing righteous things. If one's motive is to be noticed by others, it's not about saying, look at me, look at me, how holy and spiritual I am. And note throughout Christ is contrasting how his disciples, that is kingdom people, are to now live in contrast to the religious hypocrites of the day. I think one of the most offensive things in all the world is religious hypocrisy. And we see that in our text today. Now notice uh, Christ speaks of your father. And that must have been shocking to his Jewish audience. You understand in the Old Testament God is called father only 14 times in the whole of the Old Testament and generally that is in relationship to national Israel. The Jews really did not know this reality of God personally being their father. They did not know God intimately on that on that basis. I like this kind of, it's kind of a cute meme. Are you related to anyone famous? I don't want to brag, but I heard dad calling God his father. <laughs> you know, really, it's a pretty amazing thing that as believers, we know God as, as father. I mean, we say that, and you know, we, we know these things backwards and forwards, but to really stop and think about what does this really mean? Well, in contrast to the sparsity in the Old Testament, Jesus used the term Father 17 times in this Sermon on the Mount and 10 times here in Matthew 6, 1 through 18. God, as our Father, emphasizes that we are his children, and therefore what? We share in his character. There is to be some family likeness here. It is to be demonstrated in the life. This is the secret to Christ deeper living out the moral sense of the law. God is now our Father. I mean, if you really belong to God, He is your Father. And we now share in His nature. And this should show in our lives. But we are not to be showy about it. Verse 2. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. After introducing the theme of practicing righteousness and not doing so in a showy way, the issue of piety that Christ first deals with here is almsgiving, charitable deeds. You see, for the Jews, almsgiving was considered to be the height of personal piety. I mean, if you're really spiritual, you give alms. Jesus here rebukes the common practice of prominent Jews bringing great attention to themselves when they did some charitable deed. You see, they did not want any good deed to go unnoticed. Now, some think Jesus may be speaking metaphorically to emphasize, you know, when he talks about blowing the trumpet before you and so forth, uh, some think he may be speaking uh, metaphorically to emphasize that charitable giving is not to be publicized, which he certainly is making that emphasis, uh, which is indicative of hypocrites. You see, the Jews had chests in the temple, which resembled a trumpet by which they received the offerings of the people. And these chests were trumpet-shaped with a wide opening at the top and then narrowing. And when the coins were put in, uh, they then went down uh, wide opening and then through this narrow channel down into the chest. And, of course, this was so no one could stick their hand down in there. You know, it got narrow and narrow. You, you might get your hand stuck down in there. Uh, you know, and, you, and it got so narrow that you wouldn't be able to reach down into the chest to get some money out. Now, some point out that the hypocrites like to convert their gifts into the largest number of coins possible and then noisily toss their coins in a prolonged way into the trumpet-shaped coffer, thus drawing attention to what a great giver they were. Could I have it all in pennies? (laughs) Look at what I'm doing. The word hypocrites refers to a play actor, one who plays a role on a stage. You see, a hypocrite is a player, an actor. He is a phony who pretends to be something that he's not. Hypocrites who pretend to be spiritual but are not are especially offensive to God. He's not into hypocrites. It's the reason Jesus was harder on the scribes and the Pharisees than anybody else in his entire ministry. In Matthew 23, Jesus condemns the scribes and the Pharisees in the harshest of terms because of their glaring hypocrisy. They were real religious players, the worst. I think the worst place in the world to be, in the whole world, is right where I'm standing, if if you're a hypocrite. I certainly hope that's not true of me. I'm sure there's probably an element of hypocrisy in all of our lives. But uh, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I see it's something God detests. Well, Jesus says those who put on a big hypocritical religious show have their reward. They want glory from men. Some people say, Oh, oh, that is so impressive. They have their moment. They have their moment of glory, but that's all they're going to get. They have no reward from God. It's just a, a moment of fleeting human approval that doesn't last. There's nothing more to come. That's it. It's over just that quick. But get this point. God does not reward hypocrisy. There is no lasting reward for showboaters. John MacArthur tells a story. A man came into my office one Sunday and told me it was his first time to worship with us. And he intended to make our church his church home. He handed me a generous check with the promise that I would receive one just like it every week. I told him I did not want to receive checks personally and suggested that he should give anonymously as the rest of the church family did. <laughs> yeah. What's, why are we doing this? Why are we going to the, the, you know, the main teacher here and, and saying, hey, look, I'm going to join your church. Every week I'll be doing this. Wh- wh- why? Wh- what is the motive behind this? Why don't you do like the rest of the family and just give it as unto the Lord? It's a matter of worship. Well, people shouldn't be in, what, what are you doing? I'm always amazed at how many ministries publicize their big givers. You know, they have lists. I, I have them send them to me in the mail. I keep looking for my name on there, but it, it's not there. But, you know, that kind of ruins it. And as we see in the text, the, the the issue is motives. Sometimes charitable deeds cannot be hidden, but the motive should never be to draw attention to ourselves. That's the point. And when Jesus says, when you do a charitable deed, that expects that his disciples will be doing these things. In Matthew 5, 16, Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. But note the emphasis there. It is to the end that God's glory be promoted, not our own. And so this gets to the issue of motives. It's not that nobody ever sees you doing anything to the glory of God. They do. Matthew 5, 16. But make sure it's really not self-serving. It's really to the glory of God. This is the issue. Are we really promoting the cause of Christ, or does this amount to self-glorification? That's always the issue. Note the emphasis here throughout. Verse 1, before men, to be seen by them may have glory from men. When the motivation is that people take notice and give me some accolades, that is really to the glory of self. There's no reward in self-glory. It's its own reward, but it has no eternal reward. Howard Voss says, though the works may be good, when the motivation is wrong, we have no reward from our Father in heaven. Amen. Well, the Chinese are known for emphasizing to their pastors, don't touch the girls, don't touch the gold, and don't touch the glory. That's good counsel, good counsel. Don't be a glory robber because all the glory belongs to God. Verse 3, but when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now, this is easier for some than others. Just kidding. What is the point here? Your left hand doesn't know what your right hand's doing. Jesus is making a point, And that is, don't be self, self-absorbed in your giving. Don't give it over attention. Don't be too self-conscious about it. Of course, you're going to be intellectually aware. But the point is, don't be self-focused on it. Keep selfism out of it. Let your giving be done inconspicuously. Don't don't make too much out of it, even in your own mind. Really, Jesus is using a form of hyperbole here that implies absolute secrecy, as he goes on to emphasize in verse 4. The issue is that our giving is not to be with mixed motives but with pure motives that truly have God and God alone in view. Verse 4. That your charitable deeds may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. You see, what we are in secret is really what we are before God. Spiritually speaking. You see we still all have the flesh, even as God's people. And that flesh really cannot be trusted. The only way you can really trust your motives is to keep your piety between you and God. You see, people want to be noticed. They want to be stroked. And indeed, we all do need encouragement. But when it comes to giving, Jesus is emphasizing That it is to be totally God centered. And the only way to really ensure that that is true is to do your giving in secret. The issue here again is all about motives. Do I do it to be seen by people? That's pride. That's self glory. That makes it about self and not about God. Jesus says the key to proper giving is to do it in secret, do it before God. Like, I, when I like to talk about uh, an audience of one. An audience of one. Now, not that other people aren't around, but really, it's God that I'm concerned about. Uh, His approval is what matters, doing it for Him alone and for His glory. And notice here, God sees what is done in secret. A major theme in the Bible is, is that reality. Jeremiah 23 24, can anyone hide himself in secret places? So I shall not see him, says the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? God sees the secrets of the world. People kind of, they have such a small view of God, thinking that they're going to fool God somehow. God is never fooled. Hebrews 4.13, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God sees everything, and he will reward whatever is done in secret. This becomes kind of a matter of faith, doesn't it? Does it really matter? Nobody sees. Oh, yeah, but God. And he's the one that only matters ultimately. So giving becomes a matter of of faith. I'm doing it before the Lord as an act of worship. It doesn't matter what anybody else knows or thinks. There's a little poem that's called Father... Where shall I work today? And it goes like this. Father, where shall I work today? And my love flowed warm and free. Then he pointed me out a tiny spot and said, tend that for me. I answered quickly, Oh no, not that. Why, no one would ever see. No matter how well my work was done, not that little place for me. And the word he spoke, it was not stern. He answered me tenderly. Ah, little one, search that heart of thine. Art thou working for them or me? Nazareth was a little place, and so was Galilee. Appropriately, unknown author. Don't know who wrote this. Appropriately. I answered quickly, oh no, not... That, why, no one would ever see. You know, it's easy to uh, preach this. Uh, I sometimes wonder, as far as my own heart, Lord, where are my motives totally here? I mean, I'm up in front of people every week. I don't know. It's kind of scary. When we're working for God, we don't need the recognition of men. Yes, we do need encouragement. We do need to build each other up. That's true. We need Barnabases. But we have to be careful. What's our real motives? Is it really all about God or is it somehow deflected to self? God sees. He sees what's done in secret for his glory. You see, secret giving puts the emphasis on God because people are not involved. It ensures a God-centered focus. The enduring reward that really matters comes from God. And what really matters for all eternity is what God will say on Judgment Day. It's not going to matter what anybody else thinks. His is the only opinion that counts in the end. You know, as we go along in life, we come to learn on a very deep level that it only matters what God says. People's opinion, in the ultimate sense, does not really matter. And that's sometimes kind of a tough lesson to learn, but it's a good lesson to learn. And you'll learn as you go along in life, the further you go along in life, people will disappoint you, people will say this, people will say that, they'll think this or that. It doesn't really matter. God knows everything. That's what really matters, and you need to live accordingly. I speak to myself first and foremost. But how wonderful we have this promise in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. God's not going to forget. Those, do, those things done for his glory and secret, he's not going to forget it. Everybody else might forget it, but God's not going to. He's keeping track of it all. People can be very fickle, but not God. Live for God, give for God, be totally God-focused in all of your doing and giving. This is what counts. One footnote here, uh, this comes from William MacDonald, he says, This passage should not be pressed to prohibit any gift that might be seen by others, since it is virtually impossible to make all of one's contributions strictly anonymous. It simply condemns the blatant display of giving, and that is the emphasis here. The Spirit is that our giving is to be done for God's glory and not for self-glory. Another footnote here. Note the word openly in my New King James is not, again, found in the older manuscripts, but as you consider the whole counsel of God, uh, his reward for faithful service is certainly going to be uh, an open, known reality. John MacArthur says, it, was, it is said that there was a special out-of-the-way place in the temple where shy, humble Jews could leave their gifts without, be, without being noticed. Another place nearby was provided for the shy poor who did not want to be seen asking for help. Here they would come and take what they needed. The name of the place was called the Chamber of the Silent. People gave and people helped, but no one knew the identities of either group. Hey, that's pretty cool, isn't it? But I would add this. God knew. God knew. And the Father who sees in secret will himself reward Each one. In the matter of piety, having addressed the issue of giving, Jesus now addresses the issue of praying. Praying is a very spiritual thing, right? Well, it should be, but not always. Sometimes people are playing and praying, and sometimes I always laugh when somebody says, "Lord, we play uh, pray." Well, yeah, let's make sure we're praying, not playing. Verse 5 And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Don't pray like the hypocrites. They pretend to be so spiritual in their grandiose, self serving, self oriented praying. They pretend like it's all about God. But really, it's all about them. Kind of reminds me of that person who came running into the room and said, Attention, attention, attention! And everybody said, What? He said, I just want attention. (laughs) That's all about self. They love the attention of being seen by men. They love coming off all impressive in prayer because it makes them look so spiritual. Once again, this is not about God. God. Rather, they were making it about self. In truth, their prayers were really not directed to God, but really to other people. They were praying with people in mind, not God. With self in view and not God. Again, narcissistic praying is always wrong. And once again, Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, they have the reward. They have the reward. But no reward from God. Just that momentary recognition from people who may be impressed by their hypocritical display. Jesus says, verse 6, But when you pray, this is how you should pray. Go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Want to pray in a God-honoring way? then don't focus on putting on a show. No matter the oratory, no matter the tone, no matter the tears, God is not impressed. In fact, he sees right through it. He sees the heart. He sees the motivation. Jesus is saying, make prayer all about God, not about self in any way. And the best way to do this and to ensure that you're doing this is to get away by yourself where it's just you and God. I was talking uh, to someone this week, and, and uh, they're pretty much a shut-in at this point, and they said, you know, I can't do much of anything anymore but pray. But I pray. Well, I told them that's, that's one of the most important things you can do. No genuine God-focused prayer is precious to God. Prayer that truly makes him the focus in the secret place will be rewarded. There is a special reward for praying. Every prayer offered up has its own reward. God works through prayer. If people don't use the prayer closet, I I think it probably proves that they don't put much stock in prayer. People that really believe prayer matters, pray. Do you believe that even one single heartfelt prayer can change the course of a nation? Or that it can change the eternal course of a human being? Prayer is powerful as it aligns with the will of God. James, after saying the the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous person avails much. After he said that, then he said this. Elijah. You know, that great prophet in the Old Testament was a man with a nature like ours. Get the gravity of what he's saying. He said, oh, he was a very spiritual, different kind of a person. No, he was just like us. Very human. He was a man with a nature like ours. I know that's true. You know why? Because he used some sarcasm in his ministry. (laughs) I mean, when he's having that duel with the prophets of Baal, I mean, he said, you know, you need to call out louder. Your God's not hearing. Perhaps he's on the toilet or something. Shout a little louder. I love that. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. <laughs> but notice the emphasis here. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. He prayed earnestly. And he prayed again. And the heaven gave rain and the earth produced its fruit. God works through prayer. It's not just true of Elijah. James' point is God wants to use your prayers just like he used Elijah's prayers. You say, but oh, I think Elijah's prayers were special. That You're missing the point of James. There's power in prayer. And God works through prayer. Such an amazing statement in Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. According to the power that works in us. You say, well, I think I have pretty much tapped out, you know, as far as uh, the maximum that God's going to do. Well, he's able to do more. Not just a little more. Exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. If you study the whole of Scripture, you will find God consistently working mightily in answer to prayer. This is God's idea. Prayer is God's idea. And God-focused prayer done in secret is the secret weapon. This is the secret to answered prayer. Sure, we can pray publicly, and we should, and we do. But I think the emphasis here is that first and foremost, the reality of prayer... Should be seen in our private prayer life. If all you do is pray publicly, there's something major wrong with that. Now, of course, Jesus wasn't prohibiting all public praying. Really, he was correcting the whole misguided practice of showy praying. Whether we pray in private or in public, our focus should always be on God. And there certainly is a place for praying in public. Uh, For example, in 1 Timothy 2 8, I desire therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. This is public prayer that he's calling on the leaders of the church to be leading the congregation in prayer. In the early church, we see a constant practice of publicly praying together, and not only in private. The church was born out of a prayer meeting, as seen in Acts 1 and 2. The first missionary journey was born out of a prayer meeting, as seen in Acts 13. So the issue is merely, is not merely about where we pray. The issue that Christ is really emphasizing here is why. What is our motives? Are they truly God-centered and God-focused? William McDonald says, the point is not where we pray. At issue is why we pray. To be seen by people or to be heard by God? There's the issue. Verse 7. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Jesus adds this qualifier about prayer. Not only should we pray in secret with a total God-centered emphasis... But also when we pray, don't use vain repetitions as the heathen do. The Greek word translated uh, repetitions, batologeo, geo, that's an interesting Greek word. Battle it just sounds interesting. It, it denotes babbling or speaking without thinking. Jesus says, you know, I want you to be thoughtful in your prayer life. You see, pagan prayers are ridiculous and mindless. They're, they're essentially chants. They're mindless mantras, thinking that they will be heard for their many words. Just repeating a bunch of verbiage is not God-honoring prayer. You see, true prayer puts your mind and your heart into it. You know, we don't meaningfully uh, communicate with other people with vain repetitions, do we? No, we don't. How much more insulting to do so with God? Imagine if I went to my wife and said, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. What's for dinner? 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 And after we got done, I said, thank you, dear, 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 thank you, dear. You know, if this was our routine... I don't think it would be very long, and she'd probably have to say, are you stuck? Do we need professional help? Why would we do this with God? You know, often prayers can sometimes get pretty mindless, pretty repetitious, just mouthing mantra words, and I'm sure I'm somewhat guilty of this, honestly, as I pray through my prayer lists. I've got some pretty big lists now, that, and, you know, I need to get through the list. <laughs> oh, my. These things are convicting. Someone has said, all of us have one routine prayer in our system. And once we get rid of it, then we can really start to pray. There's probably more truth in that than we really want to admit. Frankly, a lot of people memorize what is called the Lord's Prayer in kind of a mantra-like style, just quoting the words by rote, just vain repetition, the exact thing Jesus said not to do just previous to the Lord's Prayer. I'm always reminded of this travesty when they go to some event such as a funeral and you have this clergy person up there and they say, now let's all pray the Lord's Prayer. And, and just, you know, we have this, this bunch of folks it just kind of in a monotonous rote way, just kind of vainly repeat it. Roman Catholics do this as they mindlessly quote the rosary. How many Hail Marys did you do? Uh, okay, okay. Which, of course, has even deeper theological blasphemy involved than in the mere repetition of certain words. I've heard of charismatics that claim tongues as their private prayer language, and they go into their prayer closet and, and speak in tongues for hours. Really, what amounts to mindless spouting nothing but sheer gibberish, thinking, boy, really doing something? Vain repetition. Sometimes some choruses follow suit with a bunch of mindless repetition that is all emotional in orientation, but does virtually very little, if anything, for the mind. And we call it worship. I sometimes wonder if it's not just vain repetition with little or no substance. Some meetings are almost put people in sort of a trance as we over and over and over repeat to try to build to some emotional experience. In effect, Jesus is saying, when it comes to praying, put your mind into it. Put your heart into it. Don't use vain repetitions like the heathen do. That's what they do. Don't just do mantra praying. Constantly mouthing some form of abracadabra. Abracadabra is not impressive to God. People who have a heathen approach to prayer in the sense of vain repetition, really have a wrong view of God. They seem to think it's about, not about the substance they're praying, but really about the amount that they're praying. If they just say enough words, enough verbiage, they may wear God down to where he grants what they're mumbling about. It kind of reminds me of Samson and Delilah. You remember the approach there by Delilah in Judges uh, chapter 16? Uh, She wanted to know what is the secret of Samson's strength so she could betray him and get, you know, the money out of the, the natives there. And so here's how it went. Here's her strategy. It came to pass when she pestered him daily with her words and pressed him so that his soul was vexed to death that he told her all his heart. And said to her, and he told her the secret. Some people seem to approach God with this strategy. If I just pester him long enough with enough verbiage, he'll perhaps weaken and give me what I want. I'm praying and praying and praying and praying and praying and praying. It's really a manipulative approach to prayer and has a very small and wrong view of God. You see, it doesn't work that way. For one thing, God honoring prayer is not the idea of trying to get my way through with God. Rather, it's about getting God's will done. God honoring prayer has a God agenda from beginning to end. It's not about a self agenda at all. God doesn't need to have many words. You see, God does not need to be educated. And long prayers are not more effective than short prayers. Really, it's thoughtful, heartfelt prayers that are God-honoring. Nothing wrong with long prayers necessarily, but they should not be uh, just vain repetition. A footnote here, Wycliffe Bible Commentary. Yet it is not mere length nor repetition that Christ condemns. Jesus prayed all night, Luke six twelve, and repeated his petitions, Matthew 26, 44. but the unworthy motive that prompts such religious acts. Again, what God is really looking for is piety that is born out of the heart, not just merely going through the motions. And so he says, verse 8, Therefore do not be like them, for your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. Don't come to God acting like he needs to be educated. He already knows what we need. Even before you ask him. He didn't say, oh, oh, thank you for informing me. Uh, Now maybe I can do something about that. He he knows before you ask This is not a matter of filling God in or or trying to wear Him down. So the legitimate question then arises, right? If God already knows, then why do we really need to pray at all? Well, thank you for asking. That's a very thoughtful question. Prayer is a fascinating study. The short answer is that we pray so God will be glorified and we will be strengthened. You see, prayer is simply talking to God. It is communication with God. And every relationship is based on communication. And healthy relationships have healthy communication. And God desires to have a meaningful relationship with us, a communication relationship, a prayer relationship. You see, he talks to us through the word of God. That's why we call this the word of God. You want to hear from God? He is spoken. He's speaking. The Holy Spirit's speaking. You study the Bible. And we talk to him in prayer. It's a relationship. It's a communication relationship. He communicates to us through the word, and we communicate to him in prayer. Now, in verse 8, Jesus says, Your father knows the things you have need of. So in view here is prayer about our needs. We are to pray about these things because it acknowledges our dependence upon Him. You see, God could do it without prayer. But in relying upon God through prayer, it draws us closer to Him. It shows our dependence upon Him. And it shows our God to be the living God as he works in answer to our prayer. He's the living God in real relationship with us as he answers. We ask God and then he answers. And what do we do then? We thank him. And we say, wow, look what God did in answer to prayer. Isn't that exciting? Happens all the time. And in this continual process, God is glorified through prayer. You see, prayer is not merely about communicating information. It's really about, you ready for this? Worship. It's about worship. This is a true story about Hudson Taylor. He lived from 1832 to 1905, and he was a missionary pioneer and founder of the China Inland Mission. And this is a true story. It comes from Hudson himself. As they were sailing to China, suddenly... The ship he was on was in peril off the coast of New Guinea. You see, the wind had ceased and a four-knot current was carrying them rapidly towards sunken reefs. And as they drifted near to the shore, they were alarmed to see natives building multiple fires. The captain informed him that the natives were cannibals. <laughs> And my insert is, I think they were excited to be having the people aboard this ship coming to dinner. (laughs) Taylor's testimony is this, quote, after standing together on the deck for some time in silence, the captain said to me, well, we've done everything that, that can be done. We can only await the result. Taylor says, a thought occurred to me and I replied, no, there is one thing we haven't done yet. What is that? He queried. Four of us on board are Christians. Let us retire to our own cabin and in agreed prayer ask the Lord to give us an immediate breeze. He can easily send it now as as at sunset. Taylor briefly prayed but did not continue long because he felt that the Lord had granted the appeal and would send the wind. So Taylor ventured again on deck and asked the, the first officer to lower the sails. What would be the good of that? He answered roughly. I told him, We have been asking a wind from God and that it was coming immediately. And we were so near the reef by this time that there was not a minute to lose. Within minutes, the wind did begin to blow and it carried them safely past the reefs. I'm sure they were waving. (laughs) Taylor then wrote, Thus God encouraged me before landing on China's shores to bring every variety of need to him in prayer and to expect that he would honor the name of the Lord Jesus and give the help each emergency required. Indeed, the effectual fervent prayer of the righteous avails much. But prayer done for self-glory and not God's glory is not God-honoring. The story is told about a supposed holy man in the east who covered himself with ashes as a sign of his humility. And when tourists asked him permission to take his picture, the mystic would commonly rearrange his ashes to give the best possible image of his pious humility. You know what? A great deal of religion is about people rearranging their ashes to try and impress people about how spiritual they are, to give the best possible look. But before God, all such hypocrisy is a sham. In reality, such piety is all about a commitment to self and not to God. You see, God is looking for heart religion, not, mere, not merely an outward show. He wants what's real. Seek to please an audience of one namely God. And I speak to myself first and foremost. Paul summed it up well in 2 Corinthians 5, 9. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. It's all about pleasing him. Live for him. Live for his glory. That's what counts. That's what matters. It's all about him. Let's stand and have our closing song, and then I'll close in prayer.